I pray that those words sink deep into our hearts. I mean, the words of Scripture being sung at times, um, sometimes you sing things because you know they're true. Sometimes you sing them to help your mind and heart and soul come into alignment that they're true. Amen? And so wherever you're at today, I pray that those would just wash over you, these songs. Um, hey, welcome today. Uh, my name is Eric Thien. I'm the lead pastor here at Common Ground Northeast. I wanted to start off this morning just by saying this. Happy Father's Day. Yeah, yeah. Happy Father's Day. Um, uh, we have uh, prepared the funniest video you've ever seen in your life in the form of, of a, ba- uh, uh, a dad joke duel. But the audio didn't quite work. And so we're going to post that on social media later for you to check it out. It's essentially Ken and I dueling with the best dad jokes you have ever heard. And just to give you a taste of that, just, I don't want you to miss out today. <laughs> to give you a taste, I picked a couple of them here, and I'm going to read them out loud to you. Uh, dentists, you will not like this joke. Dentists always ask dumb questions like, when was the last time you flossed? Bro, you were there. Right? I, like, I like the delay, the quick delay that happens with dad jokes. Due to the quarantine, I'll only be telling inside jokes today. Uh, uh, all right, all right, that's good. You Wordle fans should like this one. How do you make the number one disappear? You just add a G and it's gone. You had to think, you had to think that one. All right, last one. I won't subject you to more of this unless you do it of your own volition online. I know a guy who keeps stealing iPhones, but at some point he's going to FaceTime. Mm. If we had a drummer right now, right? All right. We'll check that out um, later on. I want to say thanks to all of you fathers and those who have stepped up to be spiritual fathers in the faith. I know both exist. And there's a point where you pour into that next generation, whether it's um, your physical sons and daughters or whether God has put some people under your care to be sons and daughters in the faith. And we just want to say thank you. We love you. We hope you have a chance to rest, to celebrate today. And happy Father's Day one more time to all of you. Let's give a little round of applause (laughs) to the dads out there. I want to do a couple of shout outs before we get into... um, the the sermon today, and we are starting a series on the book of James, um, and so we'll carry that through the summer. I'll give a little bit more explanation here in a second. Um, Shout outs. There was a house church, the East Indy House Church, that came on Thursday just because they called us up out random and said, hey, is there anything we can work on around Common Grounds campus so that we can, you know, pick some things up, do weeding, put some stuff up, and they came and put in a few hours of work, and I just want to say thank you publicly to you who came out. It was really gracious of you. And uh, we're excited um, that you wanted to, to jump in. So if any other house churches want to follow suit, uh, I'm going to say no to you. Um, also, last week, we, went to the, we took a small group of people to the Levi Coffin House. It was a handful of cars. Um, and it was a great point for us to be able to hang out, um, get to know each other, but also learn a little bit more about this part of the um, Underground Railroad that was taking place. Um, then uh, I did find out here this week also that tomorrow is National Refugee Day. I did not know that, so that's an awesome thing for you to check out. Um, but today, and I, am, I have not forgotten to dismiss the kids, sorry. Um, I, I will right after this. But I just wanted to give this quick little shout out to, um, and we have the June, it, it, t- t- today is Juneteenth, so happy Juneteenth. Pastor Ken already said that. 
Um, but I wanted to show you this quick picture of the, the flag that has been recently created. Check out the symbolism um, online if you get a chance to. This is the official Juneteenth flag. There's some really cool symbolism in terms of the curved line and the stars and the two different stars and one inside of the other one, the colors and everything um, that, that happens. So I want to encourage you to take a look at that. But even more so, um, as we talk about this, Juneteenth becoming a, Nash, or a federal holiday, commemorating the legal emancipation of those who are enslaved, those people who are bought here from Africa. And so I want to encourage you, do not let this be just a day off, if you have the day off. I know not everyone does. But what I want to encourage you is there is a lot of celebrations taking place, so many so we didn't want to compete by doing our own thing. We've curated a list that the Justice and Rec team has put out. Please check out that list. Do something, attend something. If COVID is a concern to you, do it online, do something. But further your understanding, celebrate, commemorate, and look at this, the, uh, the, this holiday and the reason that it exists. Bring your kids into that. Have conversations. Let it be a catalyst for conversations with your kids because we know that if uh, racism is to be ended in America, it is going to be a generational process that we continue to pass on um, to those who are in the younger generation. So um, I want to pray and ask God to continue that work through us, and then I'll dismiss kids and we'll get into um, today's teaching. Father, thank you so much for the processing of, as we have sung out songs from your scripture, as we have thought through the ideas and things going on in our trials, God, but let us not forget uh, that this holiday marks the emancipation uh, of those who were enslaved, but it did not end racism. And so, Father, what we do is we celebrate, but we also still hold, just as we see um, in, uh, in the scriptures, that you hold sometimes a weapon in one hand and a hammer in the other, because you're still fighting battles while you're building something new. And so, God, make Common Ground uh, an emancipatory congregation that continues to carry freedom into new generations and into new levels of existence here in America, Lord. We want to ask that you would do that work through us. We want to ask that you would bless this time as we get into the scriptures, that we wouldn't be the same on the other side. And we thank you for all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. All God's people said, amen. Amen. Let me dismiss the kids to their classes. For those who have classes, I think it's a pretty, uh, the, the whole group, K through fifth, if I'm not mistaken. So go ahead and dismiss the kids. Um, after the service today, please stick around and hang out. We have, I think we got cake. I know I didn't actually see it physically, but I think we had cake here, both to celebrate Father's Day and Juneteenth, all right? So for, for those who can stick around, please grab a piece of cake, mingle and hang out. I, we're going to offer it right outside because we're actually setting up for VBS immediately after the service. So goodbye, children. All right. As they're uh, finishing up, um, he, this, is, this is something um, that, that I've been looking forward to. Uh, my my go-to, my base kind of teaching is that I want to go through books of the Bible over and over. But we have, um, not all different churches do that. It's a cultural thing sometimes in some instances. But also we've had a lot of cultural moments that we've had to address over the last um, couple years. So this is a little bit home base for me, just grabbing a book of the Bible, working through it systematically over a period of time. And so we're going to be in the book of James through the entire summer. And there's two things I want to ask of you from that. One is that if you are in and out of town, going on vacations, coming back in, like I know we've got a lot going on right now, this allows you just by reading the book of James to track with us. So even if you miss something on Sunday morning, you can just kind of keep reading through the book of James and stay with us to some extent. The other part is that it's a short book, and I want to encourage you to possibly even read it multiple times. Once a week would not be that crazy for you to accomplish. Um, and then uh, if you did not know this, we have recently signed up for a thing called Right Now Media. 
it is free to you, but we have bought a, a, a subscription on our side. Put some funds towards this. Right now, media is a Netflix-like system of curriculum, videos, Bible studies, book studies. And for anyone here who wants it, we can make that available to you. And it's got a lot of resources. If you're in your house churches and you want to use the James study to follow along and track with us, there's some things that you can print off if you're into printing things off, I guess, and following along with like worksheets and stuff and asking questions. There's videos by Francis Chan, Luna Abujamra, Tony Evans, and then three or four others, um, people that I wasn't as familiar with, just on the book of James. So there are three studies right now. So I want you to encourage you, if you're interested in some other resources, that's available to you. And we have that for about a year. If we feel like it's useful, we're going to keep using that. If we don't, then we're going to kind of reevaluate at some other point. But check it out, book of James on Right Now Media. Um, you can even get it like as an app on your, um, like we use our fire stick. And so you can throw it up on the television without too much complication. So, all right. Enough disclaimers. Um, this, is, this is how I want to start us off today um, for the sermon. Uh, a few years ago in my ministry, I was working, through a, uh, working at a camp. And so um, I started going to this camp as a kid. And then uh, as a youth pastor, I started taking my youth uh, kids to this camp. And we were always the bad news bears. The kid's getting in trouble. I wear that as a badge of honor, all right? I, I, I am proud of this situation. Um, but my kids would always be the ones kind of uh, showing up, not, not necessarily following all the rules, and they'd have to be reminded of different things. Eventually, I served at the camp as a devotion leader, uh, a pastoral dean for the men, and then I led worship at one point. One of the things that we did every year at the beginning of the camp was state our camp traditions. Camp traditions, if you didn't realize this, kids don't like rules, Right? And so you'd be like, ah, oh, man, I don't want to do these rules. The students always think adults are trying to kill the fun, but we're really just trying to help you not kill yourself out in the woods where there's bears and rocks you can fall off of and all these different things. So as we're trying to build this up, what we would do um, is, is try to make sure everyone has a good experience, fun, positive, safe. And so what we did is we came up with this solution. Our camp doesn't have rules. And so we build it up. We'd make this huge deal like camp is about fun, and the kids would start clapping. Camp is about there's no parents here, and then they really get excited. Camp, there's, and there's no rules, and they're freaking out in front of us. But we do have a few traditions that we need you to agree to before we move on. It worked. I don't know why, but it, it worked, right? Um, and so they would agree to it. There were just these rules repackaged as traditions um, that we would order uh, the, the set of behaviors in the way that we wanted them to run over the camp. Everyone was safe. Kids aren't sneaking out into the woods together. And there's generally just a good, positive, respectful atmosphere. Now, the students couldn't see this, but these rules are in place for their joy. Do you see what I mean? These rules are there for their benefit, that the boundaries and parameters that we set for them um, are meant to help them have a great week at camp. And I don't think it stops just with kids. I think adults need to be reminded of that very same thing, right? Rules exist at times for us and our joy and our betterment so that we would live in a way that is beneficial to us and those around us. So we all want to claim agency over ourselves. Nobody wants to have anyone tell them what to do. It doesn't matter if you're a kid, if you're a youth at a camp, or if you are the adult in this room right now. What you want is the ability to have freedom to make all of the decisions for yourself in the way that you see fit. But what the Old Testament tells us, if you've ever read the book of Judges, the refrain is that everyone did what they see fit in their own eyes. And it doesn't go well. I mean, it's, it's a horrific outcome. 
And uh, you can read the book of Judges, but trust me, nothing, nothing ends up well when you just do what is right in your own eyes. And so people for years, they write codes of conduct, right? We, we have ways of life, laws are written into some uh, uh, social structures. Wisdom, though, is gained over seasons of experience, practical life lessons that we build into it. And then there's civil engagements and agreements that show us how to live so that things just generally go well in society. In fact, the Christian um, paradigm has a word for this type of thing. It's a proverb. A way of life, a, a, a saying, maybe it's very short, not, not always. Sometimes it's in the form of a parable, a story. But the idea is that we want to pass on to you ways of life that will help you along the way. There are no, about 900 proverbs in the book of Proverbs, if you count them all out. But what I want you to know is many people don't think of it. As we turn to the book of James, this is what James is doing. I didn't know that until I started studying this book. This is exactly what James is doing. It says it's a letter that he wrote to a group of people, but it is also a list of Proverbs, teachings that James wants to hand off to a group of Jewish followers who are scattered out in different towns in this area, in this region. And so what happens, it's like James sits down to write this letter, and he says, man, I love this group of people. These small churches, they're all scattered out. Maybe they're lonely. Maybe they need a little bit of encouragement as they're out there. I want to send this nice, nice letter. And so James sits down and says, hello, this is James. I love you very much. Rule number one. What if someone did that to you? And he hands out this rule. All right, rule number two. Rule number three, there are about two Proverbs, or sorry, uh, yeah, Proverbs per chapter, and the last one has three. And so what you have is this, this list of the best teachings James has to hand off to this group of people. He goes on for about 11 precepts for them to follow. In contrast, right, to the kids at the camp, to us today, what we don't like is when somebody sits down and says, here are 10 things that you need to do. We have a defensiveness that rises up in us, but the Jewish people didn't always see it that way. They've actually um, often are always trying to reorient their hearts, and in so doing, I hope we have a chance to reorient our hearts to see things as wisdom or lessons, even laws that are something I want to seek after. We don't often say, hey, can you meet with me? I want you to tell me how to live. Tell me what to do, please. That's just not like a normal paradigm. And so this is what I, I, my prayer over this entire series. The life-giving ways of Torah were ingested and even seen as such a good thing that this is what it says in Psalm 19, 7 through 13. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. You don't ever sit down and talk about the law like this, right? The speed limit brings joy to my heart every time I pass the sign. It says, verse 9, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there, are great, there is a great reward. But who can discern their errors? Their own errors, sorry. Forgive me my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. 
then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. So is it possible for us to approach the scriptures knowing that they are meant to tell us what to do? People hate the book of James. Martin Luther wanted to take it out and put it in the appendix, say that this isn't even a part of the Bible. That's how difficult it is for us to receive what it is, how it is we are to live. And so the letter of James is meant to be ingested like sweet honey, welcoming a change of life, welcoming this idea that God might do something new and correct us and teach us how it is we are to live. And so this is the approach that I want us to jump into. Jesus, the writer, uh, Jesus' half-brother, James, is tradition. There's a little bit of debate, but traditionally, James, Jesus' half-brother, um, he is the one who writes it, and it's important for you to know this. J uh, James comes from a very humble household, the same one that we see Mary trying to find a place to, to give birth to Jesus, and there's no inn open. The same one that comes from Mary who wrote a song, the Magnificat, for the lowly because she knew she was lowly herself. So James comes from this humble, low socioeconomic community of Mary, Jesus, and the rest of the siblings who, by the way, are geared towards advocating for the lowly, and he too will speak from the world of what they consider the pious poor. And he's going to reinforce this. He's going to, you're going to see echoes of him bring back this socioeconomic difference throughout this, alluding to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that the poor in spirit are actually the ones who will inherit the earth. And so he's constantly lifting up the lowly, and you're going to see this echo throughout the entire um, section of Scripture, throughout the book of James. So some of what he says is going to pit himself against the oppressors of a higher financial means, and it's going to repeat throughout the letter. Some of what he does means that he's going to prepare the reader for difficulties that may, they may not know are in front of them that they're going to have to engage with. And so as I mentioned before, um, if you are going through a difficulty and someone tells you, hey, look, all things work together for the good of those who love them, that's hard. If you build that theology before you walk into a difficult time or a trial, i.e., someone says, hey, this is going to be hard. Why don't you learn some really good lessons about how to walk through difficulties and trials before you walk through them so you can use them? And so that's what James is hoping to do. And I don't know where you come in today. You might be walking through a difficulty. And so to you, I, I'm not saying this correction. What I'm saying is I'm sorry that you're going through that. And that's a shepherding moment. That's a totally different circumstance. This book is coming from a very specific, hey, I'm going to help you as you walk through this. So let's build this idea as you go into a difficulty in your life because guess what? Life is full of difficulties, all right? So that's like my little preamble to the book of James, setting us up for this. Today we are going to cover James 1, 1 through 18. It's all one little section. We're going to read that together. It says this, James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, if you have a sibling, uh, try to imagine that. I called my brother lots of things. A servant of him is not one of them. I've never referred to him as a master of me or anything of the sort. So you definitely see this difference in the way it's in, in, uh, engaging, right? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy. Someone say joy. joy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking 
May you be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. I'm actually going to go ahead and keep reading from there. Um, Verse 6, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the waves of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind, that the person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable. Now, now first, like this, this is a pretty direct language, right? Um, Somebody didn't work on James's soft skills before they released him into writing letters on how you should live your life. James just says things directly, and oftentimes he accompanies it with a little bit of a critique in your life. And so know that you're going to have to build that up right out of the gate. uh, James wants to make sure that they understand the purpose of, of trials is not just to beat you down. That the purpose of trials is not just to cause you to doubt yourself, but that there is a purpose inside of these trials that's greater. And because of this purpose, you can walk into them with joy. So it's not some kind of like weird masochistic desire for punishment. This is to be done. This is to be endured. This is to walk in with joy, understanding that there is a result in mind at the end of this that is going to be worth it if I do it. And so you look past the trial of what's going on, you endure by focusing on the result that it will produce, on the reward that it will gain on you, and you might ask yourself, well, what reward is there that I could possibly have by walking through a difficult circumstance? Well, there's a few that we can see. One is just the fact that you gain more perseverance. The ability to endure the next trial. Have you ever wondered, like sometimes it's interesting, I, I think Erwin McManus mentioned this at one point, the, the battle, um, the, the reward for winning a battle is the ability to go into a more difficult battle. Isn't that kind of crazy? But it's true, right? Like you build up enough bi- uh, ability that you're able to walk into something better prepared than you were before. And so it's just like working out, right? Part of a reward for lifting weights is the ability to increase the amount of weight that you can lift. I don't know, then I guess so you can brag about it. Whatever, you know, whatever it is that you do on the other side of that, right? I don't lift weights very much. The second reward is this idea of completion or fulfillment that he talks about. You become mature, complete, whole as a follower of Jesus. So you persevere, you mature, and third is the example of asking God for things. That's, what it, that's the context here. He, and wisdom is the thing being asked for. Faithfulness instead of doubt is what you build into your heart when you endure difficult things. So he says, if you need wisdom, ask for it. But if you're double-minded, you're, who, what do you expect that you're going to get? You're just being tossed around to and fro. And so one of the rewards that you get for persevering, for enduring trials, is lacking double-mindedness, a focus, bringing your heart and mind together so that you believe in what you're asking for. And wisdom, in this case, is what he is asking to ask for. So paradoxically, we walk into this understanding that trials, suffering, are actually gifts that God can give us, that maybe it's not, depending on your theology, it's just the circumstance of life as you walk into it to produce endurance, to shape your character. It's used to both build you up into completion and so that you will work things out of you that make you incomplete, all right? So this is the goal. This is what he's telling him. You can rejoice because if you keep your mind on these things, then you will, you, you'll have something that you're pushing towards. So here's the hard pill to swallow um, that it's going to seem obvious maybe to some, maybe naively obvious to others, but um, life is hard. Is that new information to anyone? 
Probably not. Now, you may not know to the extent of how hard life is, but life is hard. In fact, soon after writing the book of James, he was martyred. He was killed for his faith. So James wasn't just speaking it, he was living it. And you're going to need some things if you're going to get through the difficulties of life. And so a lot of this book, and, and especially this very beginning, he's trying to get them to know that there's processes in place. There's a reward at the other end, but you're also going to need some things. Be motivated by the outcome that you can't see now but is to come. Be prepared. Be prepared well, how do you prepare yourself? What do you do? Maybe, maybe it's new to you. Maybe you've been sheltered your whole life. I do couples counseling and recently had a conversation with someone um, who just is like, everything always just kind of works out. And I'm like, you haven't been through much difficulty in your life, have you? Because <laughs> the, the, per, the other person is like, I don't know, like I'm always having to do things because I feel like this person's never doing it. Like, it's just going to work out. I'm like, okay, there's a perspective that needs to be um, made aware of in the midst of this. But what if someone came to you and said, hey, we're going to be on a journey, and um, this journey is going to be difficult, and I'm going to prepare you for it. So I prepare you, and we start doing something, you know, like, hey, if, if some of you, I know of you have uh, ran, done marathons, but what if I prepared you for a, a half marathon? We get out there, and halfway through, I tell you, oh, sorry, this was a full marathon. That is a lack of preparedness that will destroy you, Right? What if, what if you get in the midst of something and you say, hey, this isn't actually just a, it's not just a marathon. There's actually, there's like some obstacle courses. And um, you're going to need to know how to lift yourself up over walls. You're going to need to know how to, you know, do, do, do some tire runs as you're going through. You're going to have to duck under some things. You're going to have to trudge through some mud. There's a pre preparation that takes place for something like that that doesn't happen when you're preparing your life for other things. So this difficulty that we're looking at is like an obstacle course, and I want you to be ready to be able to uh, ascend the bars without difficulty, to be able to excavate the walls. And there's trials along the way. And the best thing I could think of, and I don't know if you all know who he is, but um, John Buckingham is a, a, a member of our congregation. He's a fireman. He's actually on duty today. Uh, so I couldn't bring him in uh, to be the example for this, although I'm sure he would have. But he did lend me a couple of items that I wanted to let you see. Now, he made me aware these are decommissioned. So if you know your boots <laughs> and you know your helmet, uh, these are not currently in use. But imagine a fireman walking into whatever it is that he's walking into without having the fireproof jacket on, without having the proper boots to go into that. I mean, you just don't wear Nikes running into a house that is lit on fire. And everything is built with a purpose. This is built so that if water comes down, it drips off the back. And it doesn't go down inside of their jacket. And usually the water in the fire is hot, right? You have a, a helmet in case something falls down and hits you. You have all of this gear, right? Breathing um, uh, uh, devices that help you so that you can continue breathing in the midst of it. You have goggles so that you can see, but the smoke is still there. And so there's difficulty, not just with all of the suit on, you have to wear the suit and then teach and prepare yourself how to run through a building with all of the weight of this suit on it. And so there's mock fires that the firemen will go to. They will suit up, preparing them, insulating them from the fire, but then have to run up the, the, the ladders, 
have to come down the ladders, go up into the stairs. They have to climb walls. They have to do all of this with these packs on so that when they get in the middle of this, they don't faint and die themselves. And so there's a preparation. If you're going into a fire, you better have the right materials. If you're walking into a season of difficulty, James is saying to you, you need to have the right things in place so that you can endure with perseverance, so that you can endure well. As, as James begins to build this point, what he's wanting us to understand is that there is an assumption that life is difficult. He also knows very specifically that they need to keep their eye on the ending so that they can get through it and they don't lose motivation. They need to be prepared, but he also knows that there is a very specific trial that they are encountering, and I'm going to read that here in these next couple verses. I want to warn you, it sounds like a rabbit trail. If you just read it like a letter and you don't realize what he's doing, it sounds like a rabbit trail. So this is what it says. Verse 9, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. Do you see how that happens? Hey, be prepared. It's going to be hard. Difficulties, trials, difficulties, trials. Oh, yeah. Believers in humble circumstances, the poor people, ought to take pride in their high position. You see the, the, the contrast. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed in the same way the rich will fade even when they go about their business. So two things that I want you to notice here. First, a lot of scholars agree that this specific audience he's writing to is in a situation, a very specific situation where they are enduring persecution as poor people by the rich people in their area. So this ties into that previous statement very directly because this is an example of the trial that they are currently walking through, which is the direct opposition of the rich people in their community. Maybe some of us in this room have been under that duress. I actually listened um, to something, I think it was a podcast, and I heard that the highest, uh, the, the most constant, consistent reason people get bullied at school, kids get bullied at school, is because their clothes is dirty. Put that together. Their clothes is dirty. And so the kids who can't afford to wash their clothes endure the persecution of the kids who don't. So this isn't a new paradigm, right? And they're sitting under the duress of this. In, in the end, this isn't necessarily meant to begrudge anyone of means. If you have money, if you are rich, that's, that's not just a wholesale anyone who's rich is bad, although like I said, this, this paradigm seems to track even to today. So the self-imposed, um, well, well let, me, let, me say it, let me say it like this. James is trying to make them understand that there is an actual exchange taking place between themselves and the rich people. This is again alluding to the, the Sermon on the Mount. And so you and your low position are actually higher than you think. Those who are in high position are actually lower than they think. They just don't realize that they're going to fade like the flowers. In fact, those who have means have a self-imposed barrier between themselves and God. They position themselves within this social hierarchy, so they have a lot of things that they can turn to before they ever have to turn to God. So, so that plays out today as we see these same things, right? If you have no resources, the first resource you go to is Jesus. Lord, help me. I need to make this, these ends meet. I need to pay this bill. But if you have lots of things, if you have the ability to pay for things on your own, 
then you have this self-imposed barrier that I can always go to that before I go to God, that I can always turn to this resource, that I can always turn to my networks that I have built around me inside of this situation. But the inverse is true as well, that poverty serves to create reliance on God as opposed to reliance on financial material means. So what happens is in this way, the poor have less barriers in their faith to God. In this way, the poor can teach those of us who are rich how to trust in God, and we could safely assume maybe we need some things that we have to learn along the way. So in their low estate, it gives them abundant opportunities to build the faith through the trials presented. Beloved, consider it pure joy when you come against trials. James is reminding them that they're more likely to achieve wholeness and perfection than the rich people they are up against in this context. Now he comes back to the trial in verse 12, and then he's going to give us just a quick reminder of the personality of God. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, the person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So we get a more direct um, kind of reward, at least a picture of a reward, the crown of life that God has promised to them who love him. And then he says this about God. When tempted, verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are, one, dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then, two, have after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, I want to point out, I think we have just a quick little slide for this that I want you to check out. There's two formulas, one at the beginning and one that we just read that James is trying to get us to understand. That testing has a way of producing perseverance, which has a way of producing in us maturity, and as a result, we get the crown of life. Life being contrasted to the second line. But temptation comes. It appeals to our desires, and when we give in to those desires, we sin which gives birth to what? Death. And so it's not just formulas, it's like two routes by which we can take, two pathways that James is saying, I'm about to give you a whole bunch of ways of life that you need to live, and you are going to choose, do you want to go down the pathway of testing, perseverance, maturity, and life, or do you want to go to temptation, desire, sin, and death? And he's asking them to kind of see these crossroads that you stand at all the time in your life. If there is any doubt in the mind of his readers, though, what he wants them to understand before they end this is that God in his personality, in his character, is ultimately a good God. And so verse 16 shores the whole thing up and ends it by saying this. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Okay, so the Father produces good fruit. That term first fruits is that we are first among the new creation, little samples, little tests, tastes of what the heaven, new heavens and new earth is going to look like when the fullness of that comes. And so as you live your life, you are the first through the gate to be the ambassador of heaven and what it would look like. One commentary said, by becoming mature in our faith, 
We are new heaven and earth, samples of the kingdom of God embodied here on earth. The picture of first fruits carries this idea of a foretaste of that which is to come. And what God has done in our lives to change our hearts by his goodness is only a preview of the day to come when he will make all things new in all creation. And so we see through James that there is a couple of directions we can choose in our life. We can also encounter trials and difficulties and decide to approach those from a couple of different viewpoints. We can kind of get mad at God and question his goodness. We can go into a trial and question his goodness so much that we just completely doubt his existence. Or we can understand that there is purpose inside of trials and understand that God is building something into us and that it has a reward on the other side. The way you approach trials will change everything about the way this affects you. And this isn't a get over it. I never want you to hear me come across any kind of difficulty as get over it or suppress it or just ignore it or act like it's not as difficult as it is in the moment that you're going through it. We're not telling you to avoid anything. But what we want to do is to open your eyes to what Christ has told us through the book of James. That there is a good father and he will use all things for the good of those who love him that he will never waste things going on in your life, but that he will turn them for good, assuming we want to be mature in Christ, he can bring us there. But there's no shortcut. You don't go into the battlefield without preparing yourself. You don't go into a fire without having the right gear on. You don't go into a marathon preparing for a half marathon and get halfway in. You have to do the work in order to endure the trial well. Now, I want to ask, um, uh, as we end today, uh, there's a, a testimony in our own midst um, that I felt like was really important for us, not only to just hear, but to understand at the cross-section of two worlds that we've been living in, the gifts of the Spirit, and then entering into James, as he says, let's be prepared for trials of all kinds to consider it pure joy, Right? We, we live in the world of in between those two things, um, and uh, some things have been going on in Pastor Ken's life that a lot, some of you know, a lot of you don't know, um, but I just wanted to ask him to come up and share his testimony today of something he's been walking through for about the last six weeks. Yeah, six weeks. We'll go ahead and welcome Pastor Ken up here. He'll finish out the, the sermon here today. I got you some new boots. <laughs> Yeah, do I get to put on the hat, man? <laughs> praise the Lord, everybody. Let's give Jesus Christ a hand clap of praise. Awesome teaching. Uh, thank you, Pastor Eric, for teaching on the gifts of the Spirit, the, what we, as the Holy Ghost moves, these gifts. And we started talking about healings and miracles and all of that in, in today's trials. Um, uh, around the 1st of May, right after Easter here, Pastor E and I preached, um, I was just really feeling myself here at this church, just feeling like, man, like I feel really comfortable here. I understand what's happening. So I think on Wednesday, after, after Easter Wednesday, the 4th, Pastor E and I were in the office and just kind of, man, all these plans that we're making about, you know, the church and in the fall and all like that. Then Thursday the 5th, uh, Neil Miller and I met at a coffee shop and just more of the same and 
I feel really good. So on Friday, uh, May 6th, I woke up with an agenda to come to the church and uh, do a video on the Holy Spirit. I was also responsible for getting flowers for Mother's Day. So I had to go to Kroger and try to get the flowers for the church for Mother's Day. And then, because you guys know Gwen is my mother, I was going to try to have lunch with Gwen. Right? So that's, that's my agenda for the day. But I feel a sharp pain inside my chest. And Laurie's gone to uh, hang out with our sister Sonia. And this pain won't go away. I'm on the phone with two of my brothers. I'm like, man, this, this is not moving. I did move a couch earlier in the week for Mrs. Hernandez. Perhaps just maybe I pulled something. But it was so intense that I text Laurie. I was like, like you got to come home. I'm hurting. And so we went to the heart hospital here in community. And they decided, based on my age, ethnicity, and all like that, to do a full cardiac workup on me. So they did a CT scan. I was there for about two hours. And this is Friday afternoon, about, about 1.30, 2 o'clock. And they come back and they say, well, we got good news and bad news. The good news is your heart works fine. There's nothing wrong with your heart. But thank goodness we did that CT scan because you have cancer. We found a lump in your kidney, a mass in your kidney. And Mr. Rush, you have cancer. Like, bro, hold up. What did you just say? Like, tell me I got kidney stones. I'm passing a kidney stone. I'm prepared for that. So they told me that I had cancer and that they referred me to a cancer doctor. And it was Friday afternoon late, and the cancer doctor didn't have any appointments. So we had to sit in it for the weekend and just try to figure out what this would mean and, and just come to terms with it. Call Pastor E, call my brother Wim. Obviously, this is my first call. And the next day, I was supposed to speak at a men's event. And Laurie's like, well, do they have a backup speaker? I'm like, no. She's like, where are you going? I'm like, I'm not going to preach. Somebody <laughs> just told me I had cancer. I don't think they're going to be cool. She's like, no, you have to go. So we came to church on Mother's Day. The next day, uh, on Monday, the cancer specialist wouldn't see me, referred me to a urologist. He went to see a urologist the next week. And I'm trying to, I haven't told my kids, I haven't told anybody. I did tell the staff here, and they would help me walk through it, all the staff here at Common Ground. Uh, but I wanted to get all the information before I told my kids. So I went to see the urologist the next week. And he's like, yeah, you have cancer. 90% you have cancer. And your kidney has to come out. And those are your options. If you want to live, if it stays there and leaves your kidney, you could die. So that's what I had to go home and wrestle with. And all the while, you know, I'm trying to, trying to do my job or whatever. And I'm like, God, where did this come from? Um, I just feel like I'm ready to do this. And then, and then this, this trial comes. And for a while, it had me knocked down because it was out of nowhere. Like, I, this isn't something that's in our family or whatever. So I have to have my kidney. I took a day off, told all of my children. And it can, became very clear to me that as I told my brothers and sisters and the fear and people had for me, that I had to stand up and walk through this trial. That I had to go back into my closet and figure out, well, it doesn't matter where it came from. It's here now. 90% uh, I have cancer. And so he says, well, when we see this, we know what it is. You had a nine, uh, 
90% of the time, this, we found this cyst in you and it never becomes anything, but yours grew. So we know you have cancer. So two doctors told me I had cancer and I was going to see the specialist who would remove my kidney. And so he's like, Here, here's where God really came through. Because a lot of medicine works off percentages, right? When you're in a 90 percentile positive for cancer, they don't want to use resources to check again. We know, we pretty much know 90%. This is what it is. But God sent me to the one doctor who said, I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a minister. He smiled at me, kind of winked, like I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a believer too. Because we found this in you six years ago, and it was a P2 cyst, and a lot of people have P2 cysts, um, and 90% of the time, they don't become anything, but mine's did. He said, I'll go back and check one more time. And that was the grace of God because I had an opportunity. Now, all along, I'm trying to figure out where this comes from. Um, God is working some things out. And here's where I think it turned for me. Two, two, call, two things happened. One, I was on a, a Zoom call with the staff. And just Pastor Jody said, well, it's cool if you're not all right. And they prayed for me, and I was able to own it and sit in it. And I was able to figure out, like Pastor E, I do have some boots. I do have one of those hats. Let me go back into my faith closet and pull them out. And I was able to figure out, oh, no, wait a minute. I can do this. My children need me to do this. My siblings need me to do this. My church needs me to do this. Nobody can help me here. And it was one of my cousins needed me to come do something. She's like, no, no, you can't help anybody. You have to help yourself right now. I'm working on you. And so I realized, no, I have the faith for this. Uh, like Pastor E said, somewhere in my life, I've been prepared for this. I can do this. I don't want to. Now I got to stand up. And I got to, sh- there's something bigger. There's what God can do. Maybe there's the supernatural realm out there. Maybe, maybe I can go out there and find this. But whatever's happening, I can't sit here like a lump on the log. I got to go get this. I got to go use my faith to do this. And nobody can help me. Nobody can pray for me. But if you pray for me and I don't have it inside of me, you, you can't replace that for me. So I had to go do it. And I remember on that call telling the staff, I got enough faith to do this. If they take my kidney, I can handle that. I, it's in me. And that's what I begin to tell my children. That's what I begin to tell my brothers and sisters. And I just started looking to go through it. And the miracle was God let them work outside of the statistics, outside of the percentages to look again. And guys, it reminds me when the prophet said it's going to rain, but for six days they went out and looked and they didn't see any clouds in the sky. And they went and looked one seventh last time. It says, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand. And from that, God let it rain. And, and here's what happened. So I'm prepped for surgery. This is the lotion that I'm supposed to use this coming Thursday to have my kidney taken out. I'm supposed to shower in this. But when they went back and looked one more time, they said, that your mass has shrunk and you don't have to have your kidney taken out anymore. 
I'm going to tell you something, man. Here's where it turned for me. When they went to, to do all of this exams to see and look again and they're like that, they put you in this tube that nobody wants to be in. And I'm like, Jesus, man, I got to go in this tube. And I had to put my hands above my head and I'm, un- I'm awkward, I'm uncomfortable and just trying to breathe through it. And it was right there that I was able to tell the Lord, thank you for this trial. I'm ready to go in this thing now. I don't want to go in this thing. But I was able to get to that place where I was literally able to thank him there's something coming out of this that's greater than me, that's bigger than me. And literally, like, you can't fudge that. You, it's got to be authentically. And I told God, thank you. Thank you for putting me on this thing. Thank you for putting me in this machine that I hate. And thank you. Whatever you do, I'm cool. I I promise you I'm cool. Whatever you do. And I think because I was able to get there, what I think happened was it wasn't as much whether I would lose my kidney or not. I think today is whether we will see God move miraculously or not. And I... I think that, I think that humbly I went and got one for all of us. <laughs> I think I went and took one for the team. Y'all know, I think we can all, I think we can all see when the doctor called me, I, I was at lunch with Greg Stevens, and he said, Mr. Rush, I have the best news I've ever told anyone. He said, I'm so happy to tell you this, yours actually shrunk. There's no way we'll probably never have to deal with this again. In fact, now I don't believe you have cancer anymore. And I said, man, I'm crying. All I know, no, I don't have to have my kidney taken out. He's like, no. I said, okay, I'm going to put my wife on it. You can tell her to rest. (laughs) And I still don't know exactly what he said. I told him, I'm going to call you back next week when I come down and tell me exactly what happened. But he made us understand that this was outside what was expected, outside the statistical norms, outside the percentages. What I believe in retrospect, and there's some personal things for me, is that, is that everybody was right. I think I did have what they said I had. I think God did something supernatural. I'll just let them be right. They're just not more powerful than the God that we serve. And I think if it happened for me right here, that I can get up and I, I want God to be the hero of the story or whatever, I'm ecstatic. I, I can't believe it. I can't get my words right. I want to go crazy and praise. I'm so grateful. Um, but I also am grateful that I, that I was able to take it on that my children needed me to take it on, that I was able to maybe show my children how to face hard times and how to go through that. But God is the hero, and it is very clear to me that we serve a God, and Pastor just talked about the laws, who works inside the laws, but who also works outside of the laws. And God moves supernaturally for me.
And that's the testimony that I have today. So what should I do with this? <laughs> I, don't, I don't need, I'll keep it maybe um, as a reminder that like everything was done for me, y'all. Like, like I even have my surgery instructions. The lady told me that she'd be the nurse who checked me in at 5.30 this coming Thursday. All my children were coming to town. And so this thing was set, except God gave me a ram in the bush. This was set. I want to pray for us today and take communion that we will understand that trials will come. And this one caught me like it took me a week just to get up off the floor. But once I did, I realized, oh, no, I'm good for this. I'm equal to this. There's something in me that can handle this. Whatever God wants, one kidney, two kidney, I can handle that. And I pray for the church this morning that when the going gets tough, the faithful get going. And the anointing of God would just rise up in us. Come on, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the amazing word that Pastor Eric gave this morning. We thank you how you have given him such tremendous scriptural insight. God, that, that, that looking at text and, and, and breaking down text, you've given him a gift to do that. And, and today, God, as he, he just preached the word of God through the book of James. God, now we all understand the path that we can take, either the temptation path or the trial path, God. But we want to take the path, God, that leads to life, that builds something in us, that allows you to use our life and our circumstances. And God, and, and to put things in, allow things in our life that calls us to grow, that calls us to see you in a different light. And God, I know that for many of us, the big reward of that is that we get to go out and tell people that if he did it for me, hallelujah, I know that he can do the same thing for you. Thank you for growing us. Thank you for enlarging our territory through our trials. And so now, God, we will not walk in a manner that suggests that we cannot handle whatever you allow. God, whatever you allow, come on everybody, we give you thanks, we give you praise, we say thank you, we bless your name, we exalt your name, we lift you up, we give you praise, hallelujah, 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 whatever you allow, hallelujah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Greater are you. Hallelujah. Working on the inside of us. God, I pray that we will understand that you will give us perspective in our trials. This we believe you for. Now, come on, everybody. Let's praise the supernatural God that we serve. Come on, let's praise the God who can make ways out of my way. Hallelujah. In the middle of a desert, he can spring a well. Come on and give him praise. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. My name is Ken. 
and I have two kidneys. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Hallelujah.